Support comes from USC Online, providing exceptional online graduate programs, certificates, and upskilling for current and aspiring professionals. Explore your graduate options today with the University of Southern California at online.usc.edu. From KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. I'll admit that the salt and flour map of California that I was required to make in my fourth grade social studies class would fail to help me as an adult to locate Cuyama. But I became intrigued when I learned that the restaurant at the Cuyama Buckhorn, a renovated roadside hotel near the northern slope of the Sierra Madre Mountains, was resurrecting the ostrich burger reviewed 30 years ago by Jonathan Gold. With the added enticement of a pool, I decided a road trip was in order up to this high desert town the last weekend of a scorching July. Our room wasn't ready upon arrival, so my traveling companion James and I decided that if we came for the ostrich burger, now was as good a time as any to get it. Naturally, the new version is a smash burger, and as I was picking at the pickled veg served on the side, I heard the commotion. Men in varying styles of hats and facial hair spilled into the restaurant from a back room. Among them was the sheriff with his requisite bushy mustache, who I would later learn on one occasion walked into a bachelorette party at the hotel and was mistaken for the stripper. With him was a silver-haired man wearing a light camouflage number. This turned out to be Lee Harrington, a pistachio grower. I watched them bristle with seriousness among the rest of the men. Something was up. But as I have learned to do in small towns that I can't find on a map, Mind my own business, for once. After finishing lunch, we saddled up to the bar as one does on a Saturday afternoon in a high desert town. A boisterous man in a Tommy Bahama shirt, who seemed to know everyone in the place, introduced himself as Boomer. Boomer explained he came from Los Alamos via his awaiting limousine to support his friends, the farmers who were there to boycott the carrots. What do you mean, boycott the carrots, I asked while craning my neck around the corner to look out the window and see if the limo was indeed parked outside? It was. Boomer led us to a back conference room where tables were manned by locals with petitions and large round stickers printed with carrots and that red no sign with the circle and strike through popularized by Ghostbusters. Banners were strewn about that Boley suggested, boycott carrots. Before long, and with the cocktail still in hand, I was in a conference room watching a video about the boycott. All I wanted was an ostrich burger and a day by the pool, but what I got was so much better. While that might sound like the plot of a Wes Anderson film, it's actually good food producer Laryl Garcia recounting a weekend she spent in the Cuyama Valley this past summer. When she came back from her trip and told us there was a carrot boycott in the high desert, we were intrigued. Who were the people in that back room? And why were they so mad about carrots? Well, like a lot of fights in California, the real story here is water who owns it, how much they are using, and as underground basins dry up, what are landowners doing to protect the water that remains? Melinda Burns is an investigative reporter who has been covering this David and Goliath water story for the Santa Barbara Independent. I asked her to start by orienting us with some geography. Yes, the Cuyama Valley is a very vast region in overlaps with four different counties. 
Santa Barbara, Ventura, Kern, and San Luis Obispo. And the largest portion of the valley is in northern Santa Barbara County. It's east of Santa Maria, and it takes a long time to drive from one end of that valley to the other along Highway 166. What are the main crops grown there? Carrots is the big one. Since the 1990s, uh, two large carrot corporations, Bolt House and Grimway Farms, have been the dominant farmers in the valley. And many other crops are grown by much smaller farmers. There's cattle ranching at the western end. There are olives and pistachios at the eastern end small grape operations, and even a large grape operation, Vineyard, owned by the investment company that belongs to Harvard University. Now, can you describe the valley from a water point of view? Where does the water come from? There's no other source but rain. In other words, well water is what everybody is dependent on, whether you're living in the town of Nukuyama, population 700, or whether you're Bolt House in Grimway, taking the lion's share of, of water out of the basin every year. Something equivalent to enough water for three cities the size of Santa Barbara, population 87,000. How is that different than some other farming districts in Southern and Central California? Well, the Central Valley faces the same problem. In fact, the state has identified 21 groundwater basins in California that are in a state of severe depletion. In other words, much more water is taken out, pumped out of the basin every year than comes in through rainfall. So what you have is a steadily declining storage level underground. So in Kuyama, there's no public water, there's no state water, It's all nature. It's all rainfall, and it rains about 13 inches a year on average, though parts of the valley are getting eight inches on average. So it's, you know, it's very dry. So you mentioned these two agricultural giants that are in the community, Grimway and Bolthouse. Tell us a bit more about them, who they are, and when they set up shop in the valley, and give us an idea of how extensive their agricultural operations are. Bolt House is farming in California and Washington, and Grimway is operating in California, Georgia, Florida, Colorado, Oregon, Washington. Grimway is number one in the world for production of carrots, Bolt House is number two. And they don't only produce carrots. But in the Kuyama Valley, agriculture began back in the 50s. And even then, people were aware that the water table was declining, mostly from alfalfa. Alfalfa growers were dominant for decades there. And then carrots came in in the early 90s, late 80s. And in fact, the first company was Bunny Love, spelled L-U-V. The owner of Bunny Love 
invented the baby carrot, I guess you could say. These are not small carrots that are grown. They're larger carrots that are cut down and shaped into what we know as baby carrots now or mini carrots or carrot matchsticks, um, snack packs, all of that was, was really invented in this region. And the two companies, Bolthouse and Grimway, came in in the early 90s and it just, the baby carrot market just took off. Who owns Grimway and Bolthouse now? Both Bolthouse and Grimway are owned by private equity firms. It's so interesting that they made a choice to create kind of agricultural giants in Kuyama. If it's entirely rainwater dependent, it seems like it would be risky to invest in growing such a large crop there. Well, it's a very large underground basin, absolutely huge, hundreds of square miles. And the central part of the basin where they operate is the flattest land in the basin, and it just stretches as far as the eye can see. And it seemed like an infinite source, right? Over the decades, uh, farmers here have just, they've been hitting those pumps hard. I'm going to ask you to zoom out just for a sec and give us a brief backstory on the management of groundwater in California and in Kuyama. I think that especially here in Southern California, we are no strangers to depletion of the underground water table, especially in recent years with the longer and more severe droughts water levels are dropping all over the state. Reservoirs have not filled, at least not until this very recent wet year. And everyone has become exposed to water rationing, certainly here in Santa Barbara County. We know all about that. What happened in 2014 was that the state really took the bull by the horns and passed the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, which requires water basins to be back in balance. In other words, the amount being pumped out is not greater than what comes in through rainfall and runoff by 2040. So in these areas, the communities had to set up special agencies called groundwater sustainability agencies made of county officials and major landowners to develop plans for how they were going to do this, how much they were going to have to cut back every year on their pumping to reach that goal by 2040. And that is exactly what happened in the Kuyama Valley starting in 2017, they put together a special agency to draw up a plan for cutbacks. And Bolthouse and Grimway had representatives on that agency. So they signed off on a plan for 5% cuts starting this March. The cuts went into effect on their pumping. 
and they agreed to start their cutbacks. But at the same time, they filed a water rights lawsuit that seems to throw that process into question. In fact, they asked a judge in in Los Angeles Superior Court to adjudicate or determine specific water rights for every single landowner in the Cuyama Valley. So that puts them as plaintiffs in a lawsuit in which all other 700 landowners are the defendants. They basically sued every landowner in the valley for their water rights, something that's called adjudication. This is Steve Gleesman. And it took it out of this public process that Sigma was designed and threw it completely into the courts with a judge and a whole bunch of lawyers and no public voice and no voice for the environment. And it's forced all of us as small landowners to have to have lawyers pay fees to the lawyers to defend our water rights. Steve is a retired professor of agroecology from UC Santa Cruz. And together with his wife, Robbie, they dry farm five acres of grapes on their Condors Hope Vineyard in the Cuyama Basin. Before the lawsuit, he says Cuyama residents were fiercely independent, but the adjudication has galvanized the community. I have to admit, we were pretty pissed off, you know, really angry. And that anger just united the community in a phenomenal way. And that's where the carrot boycott came from. But uh, yeah, it just pushed us right to the limit financially. And it's not just the farmers who are getting hit with legal fees. Even the local school district has been sued. I just heard yesterday that the district itself has already spent $26,000 on legal fees. Nicole Furstenfeld is a kindergarten teacher in the Kiama Valley School District. I am also the garden coordinator at the school. So to know that these huge corporations that are in our valley, number one, who do not donate anything or do anything for their schools in this valley, they are now suing the school, which is a Title I school and has been struggling financially, as most rural schools are in this, these times. And our district, who every single class is a combo, so I am transitional kindergarten and kinder, and that is due to not having the funds. Nicole's husband, Jake Furstenfeld, is one of the organizers of the boycott. We're going to need everybody's help on this. This isn't something that we can win here just with the residents of Cuyama Valley. So we're trying to get this word out to everybody in the world so they can put pressure on these corporations by boycotting Bunny Love, Cal Organics, Bolt House Smoothies, dressings. These guys are doing a lot more and they package a lot more for a lot of stores. So when you're looking at labels, look and see where it's being packaged at. And it may have a different title on that package. But if you look at the back in the fine writing, you can see where it's it's packaged by Grimway or in Bakersfield. It's Grimway and Bolt House that are packaging it for them and just putting another label on there. For Jake and Nicole, this fight isn't just about carrots. It's a fight for their community's survival and their kids' future. If we run out of water here and they keep pumping the way they're pumping, we're all going to have to pack, pick up and leave. And you're losing hundreds and thousands of years of history right here in this valley because these guys decided they wanted their million dollar out of these carrots and everything else that they grow. They don't just grow carrots, but carrots is their 80% of the, of the world market. It's literally for our future. 
So far, Jacob and his fellow organizers have gathered over 8,000 signatures on a petition asking Grimway and Bolthouse to drop the lawsuit, reimburse locals for their legal fees, and return to the groundwater sustainability plan that they already approved. We reached out to both Grimway and Bolthouse via their websites, but did not receive a response. So I asked Melinda Burns, the investigative reporter who's been reporting this story from Santa Barbara County, what's next in this fight? Can I just say uh, first that one of the problems that the landowners in the Cuyama Valley have talked about with the water rights lawsuit is that immediately a Los Angeles court has sort of taken over the process of water rights in Cuyama. And this is because uh, Boldhouse and Grimway filed the adjudication in Los Angeles County. Yes, Boldhouse and Grimway filed the adjudication in Los Angeles County. So suddenly, the hearings are quite far from Cuyama Valley. There's no local agency involved. Before, you could go to the groundwater sustainability agency in the Cuyama Valley and you could attend meetings and they were highly technical and, and, and an advisory committee from the community was set up to help advise the board. So the community was involved at least at some level in that and certainly people like Jake Furstenfeld are on that committee and have contributed to the the shaping of, of those cuts over the years. But with the water adjudication lawsuit, suddenly a Los Angeles judge is involved and it's difficult to figure out what's happening and it's hard to get documents and it's expensive even to download documents and it's a much less transparent process. And that, too, has, has uh, made landowners wonder what's going on. Well, thank you so much, Melinda, for teasing out the details of this complex and frustrating situation for smaller growers. Well, thank you very much for having me on. That was journalist Melinda Burns discussing the water wars in the Cuyama Valley in northern Santa Barbara County. For a link to Melinda's work covering this issue, head to our website, kcrw.com slash goodfood. I also want to thank Evan George, who gathered sound from the farmers and residents that you heard from in the story. After this episode was put to bed and ready for air, we heard back from Bolthouse's marketing director. We have included her response to our questions in its entirety on our website. You can find it at kcrw.com slash goodfood. Coming up, want to find some truly exceptional carrots? We're heading to the farmer's market next. Stay with us. Support comes from USC Online, providing exceptional online graduate programs, certificates, and upskilling for current and aspiring professionals. Earn your graduate degree in a flexible online format from University of Southern California and learn from faculty at the top of their fields in areas such as business, health, law, engineering, psychology, communications, and more. 
Explore your options today at online.usc.edu. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back to Good Food. It's that time in the show when we head to the Santa Monica Farmer's Market where I believe you can find the best carrots in the universe. Jillian Ferguson is there with the scoop. This is Jillian Ferguson with the Market Report. If you are looking for farmer's market carrots after listening to that last segment, there are plenty of options to choose from at the Santa Monica Farmer's Market. I've asked Karen Beverlin, Vice President of Specialty Produce at Fresh Point, to start us off with a Carrot 101 today. Karen buys produce for some of the best restaurants in L.A., and she is always willing to share her expertise. Hi, Karen. Hi, Jillian. So, carrots, why is it important to buy them here at the farmer's market? The first thing that we need to remember about carrots is that they are a seasonal crop. There are great carrots here, a lot of different varieties, but we mainly love them in fall, winter, and spring when they're at their best. And carrots are one of those vegetables that protects itself from freezing by creating sugars when it's cold. They create more sugar when it's cold so that the water in their cells won't burst the cell walls. So that's why carrots are sweeter during the winter is because they're protecting themselves. So their protection is our benefit. The thing about buying them at the farmer's market that I think is really important is when you buy commercial carrots, they're all harvested at a specific time and then they're stored. The reason they cut the tops off them is because they will store better. You can't tell how old they are. But at the farmer's market, the farmers that we buy from harvest them a day or two before. They're letting them stay in the ground. That's why the size of the carrots fluctuates so much at the farmer's market, because they're leaving them in the ground until they need them. So now that we are getting into fall, can you name check a few of your favorite farmers and varieties here at the market? We love the Garden of's orange carrots. They are so reliably sweet and delicious. They don't have them this week. They're a little bit too small, uh, probably like a week or two, we think. But they are reliably excellent. They have beautiful texture. They're a variety that isn't grown commercially because they break so easily, because the fiber content is so low, and um, that they will break if you drop them. But we love that. We love that texture. Then a very seasonal variety from the Garden of is their Kentucky Red Kyoto Carrots. Shu Takakawa is an amazing farmer, and he wants everything that he grows to be the epitome of that variety. So you'll notice when you go to their stand, their Kentucky carrots are quite large, and that's because they're supposed to be large, that in order to develop all their sugars, they need to reach that size, right? So a baby Kentucky carrot won't ever be as sweet as a big Kentucky carrot because they weren't given the opportunity to develop um, those sugars. Tutti Frutti has several colors and varieties. Um, They have a black, an orange, and either a white or a yellow. And again, you know, they don't harvest until a day or two before the market, so they're not coming out of storage. The other thing that's super important about farmer's market carrots 
is farmers market farmers grow items that are perfect for their microclimates. And the reason small farmers do that is if they grow items that are suited to each microclimate within their farm, then they don't have to spend money on inputs. I was trained in commercial agriculture. In commercial agriculture, they chase markets. So whatever land they have, if the carrot market goes way up, they plant a lot more carrots. They don't care where they plant it. They just want the crop. And they don't care how much water they have to put on them. They don't care how much fertilizer they're going to need to use. They don't care how much pesticide they're going to need to use. But farmers market farmers don't have that luxury. They can't afford a lot of inputs. So that's why when we get farmers market carrots, they really are good because they were grown in an area where that farmer knows carrots are easy to grow here. Carrots like it here, so we're going to grow carrots. Because we have this luxury of choice with all these different varieties here at the market, how do you choose which variety you're going to get when? I am but a reflection of the chefs that we work with. I know what I buy personally for home. And for home, I buy Kentucky Red when they're available. And I buy the Garden of's Orange when they're available. The Kentucky from Garden of cook beautifully. It's such a creamy puree when you make those or use those to make puree. I don't ever buy carrots in summer even if they're here for home, I wait until they're going to be really good. And that means until about now. Karen, thank you so much. Thanks, Jillian. That was Karen Beverlin. She is the Vice President of Specialty Produce at Fresh Point, And she is also a joy to follow on Instagram. You can find her at FP Produce Hunter. The seasonal shift at the market is in full swing now, and we're seeing more and more fall produce trickle onto local menus. Chef Lucho Badon is here today shopping for his restaurant, Vicini, which opened this summer in Rancho Park. Hi, Lucho. Hi, welcome. So let's talk about the food. What are you shopping for today? I'm shopping for uh, beets, kyoja beets, and um, pomegranates that now is on full season and they are really wonderful fruit. Do they go on the same dish? Do they go on the same dish? No, but they could go on the same dish. We have uh, a a bit carpaccio that is topped with uh, green kale, pickled onions, pickled raisins, avocado. Uh, We have a dressing that is made with uh, basil, jalapeno, and white balsamic vinegar and top everything with uh, a creamy ricotta salata. Mm. And the pomegranate will go really well there. Right now, we use the pomegranate on a scallops crudo and some uh, fresno chili that they, they go really well. And we do a salad that is a baby arugula, shaved brasso sprout, pomegranate, and shaved parmesan cheese. I love how much uh, chile you're using on your menu. That surprises me. You need something that balances the, the, the creaminess of the cheeses and the sweeter of any fruit that you put there. So let's go back to that beet salad. Is it a raw beet carpaccio or is it cooked beets that are thinly no. sliced? It's a, it's a cooked beet that is a thin slice. We cook on water, a drop of vinegar, black pepper, and um, bay leaf. But you can cook the beets on many way that you want in the oven. You can take put underneath the hashes on the, on the winter after you have turned on your fireplace. <laughs> it's a wonderful product. It's a wonderful root. And you mentioned you're getting the Kyoja beets. Why that variety? 
because they're close to my heart. You know, I come from uh, Venice and we are close to Chioggia. Um, the Chioggia beads are red and, and with uh, pink circles inside. In Chioggia, the, the land have a large sand because it's close to the sea. So the, the beads is uh, softer, have creamier and, and sweeter. We use both. We alternate. One slice of red, one red, one slice of uh, Chioggia. Can you find that same creaminess in the beads here? On the Chioggia, yes. Yeah, the, the red one is a little, a little harder, less creaminess, yes. Well, this all sounds delicious. Chef Lucho, thank you so much. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to meet you. That was Lucho Bedon, chef owner of Vicini on Pico Boulevard. It's in Rancho Park in the old Louise's space. They're open six nights a week for dinner from Tuesday through Sunday. For the Market Report, I'm Jillian Ferguson. Do you already have a plan for Thanksgiving? Because I am here to help. Next week, I'll be joined by cookbook author Nick Sharma for an episode dedicated to the culinary world's equivalent of the Super Bowl. Send us your questions, your fears, your dreams, and we will help you craft your best Thanksgiving yet. You can send me an email at goodfood at kcrw.com or DM us on Instagram. We're at kcrwgoodfood. In a minute... When you've been in the restaurant business for more than 40 years, you've got a lot of stories to tell, especially when Frank Sinatra and Sonny and Cher were your regulars. Expect legend and lore from the Marino Brothers when good food continues. You're listening to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. The son of a merchant marine in Naples leaves war-torn Italy for Los Angeles. He starts his career as a waiter and climbs to the highest heights of Hollywood, befriending James Dean, Frank Sinatra, and Jaja Gabor. He opens hit after hit restaurant and has three kids who follow him into the business. Chiro Mario Marino may have passed in 2009, but at Marino on Melrose, his sons Sal and Mario carry his torch. After 40 years in the business, the restaurant is still owned and operated by the Marino family, an incredible feat in this mercurial town. This week, brothers Sal and Mario are our guests on In the Weeds. Hi, I'm Mario uh, Marino. I'm the eldest of three children. Um, I'm in the front of the house. When you come into the restaurant, you'll see either uh, you'll see me or our younger sister, Rosanna. And I am Sal, Chef Sal, and I'm in the back having fun. We're in Hollywood, in the heart of Hollywood. We're east of Highland and west of Vine in a very non-descriptive, really single-sending building. Very a blink of an eye, you can pass it. Been there for 40 years. Our parents loved this uh, location, and we've been there ever since. We grew up in Hancock Park, and we opened Marino in 1983. And it's cool, we still, all three of us, still live uh, five blocks away from each other. Growing up, back as Sal and I, our sister Rosanna was way too young at the time, but in the 70s, coming back from school, our mom used to take us to see dad, our father, because dad was always working in the restaurants. and. Back in the 70s, kids weren't allowed in restaurants. We would go to the restaurant and visit dad between right after school. And it was fun because we would uh, 
uh, at very young ages, at the age of eight, nine, that I could remember being in the kitchen and observing dad having staff meetings and tasting wines and talking to the chef and accepting linens and dealing with the, you know, different aspects of the restaurant. I would just remember going to uh, the Marquis. Back then it was the Imperial Palace, now it's talk, uh, like Chateau Marmont area, and it was a huge restaurant, and I'd just go there and run crazy, run wild everywhere, because the <laughs> restaurant was closed during those hours, and we just like go into the big walk-in boxes, and the freezers, the storage, and the, the crate just, elevator. Yeah, it was just a really, really cool. I have a great uh, experience of those few times that we would uh, go to the restaurant, of course. It was always star-studded. I remember seeing John Wayne, and I was a little kid, and this guy was so big, and I was like, whoa, that's so cool. Dad was a person who did crazy things. Uh, at our father's funeral, this uh, man by the name of Frank Pirelli, who was a comedian, and he was always with Lenny Bruce and, you know, Shucky Green and all those people. And he pulled our sister, Rosanna, and the three of us and our mom, and um, says, you know, what? You, you know, I'll never forget what your dad did to me one day. This is back in the 60s. You know, I just came from the lawyer. I just signed a divorce. I was in a bad mood. I said, I'm just going to go to Martoni's. I want to see Mario, which is our dad. And he's going to give me a good plate of pasta. And I'm going to feel better. So he pulls up to Martoni's and our uncle Sal is at the bar and he's looking at him going, it's not going to happen. And he goes and calls our dad and our dad comes over and he goes, uncle Cheech, give me a minute. I'll, I'll, let, let me see what I could do. So then dad turns around, comes back after five minutes and says, uncle Cheech, come here. So sure enough, he takes him into the dining room of Martoni's and goes, Uncle Frank, these are my good friends. This is John and his wife, Yoko. Don't worry, sit with them and have a plate of pasta. So that's the things that dad would do. And it would make people just kind of go, are you serious? Yeah, uh, Martoni was big in the um, in the record business. Uh, the closeness, of course, to, to Capitol Records and Sire and Frank Sinatra. It was like three deep at the bar like throughout the 60s and that's why dad like made a killing on those years Sonny and Cher got kicked out he was always very belligerent and getting super drunk and and one night <laughs> they had to throw him out of the restaurant yet another time and uh, because he was picking a fight and he went home and it's like on their book that's the night that he wrote I got you babe dad's First, first, first place to work at is at the uh, Chianti. It was owned by I Magnan, and he's there. He's not doing as well. Uh, the Villa Capri opens, um, and the Villa Capri, check this out. The original waitstaff of Villa Capri was my father, Mario, his soon-to-be partner in Martoni, hence the name Martoni, Dan Tana, Jimmy Hulo from La Dolce Vita, Jean Leon from La Scala, Maddie Jordan from Mateo's, and the bartender was Carmine's. And if you close your eyes and think of those places in the 70s, they all looked the same because they were all waiters that became restaurateurs. They all had the checkered tablecloths. They all had the Chianti uh, straw fiascos uh, hanging from the ceiling. And they all had... The La Scala chopped salad, the Mar Dolce Vita is all the same thing, you know. Dad made it different because he was a little more into the cuisine and the cooking. So yeah, so then Dad opened Martoni. He then opened the Marquis, renamed it the Martoni Marquis on Sunset. And um, then uh, 
in 1970, early 70s, uh, dad being the traditional old school guys like uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll America were moving to Italy and he had made a lot of money and we moved to Italy. After 25 years in America, though, he didn't like living in Naples. So we came back and that's why we have this thing where Mario and I were reared in Italy. We really, like, we grew up zero to seven, eight, nine here, then eight years in Italy, then back here, high school and college here. And that's our history. Our father was super, super, super tough. And he's like, we're opening the restaurant and you're working. And we had to work every day. Uh, we were 16 and 17 and we were the bus boys. We were the bumbling bus boys. <laughs> Dad's like all like a clientele would come in like Frank Sinatra and all like Jimmy Doolittle and the Ringo Starr and they would all come to the restaurant and you're like so in awe. You're a 16, 17 year old and all these guys are coming in and Frank Sinatra, he, like he never touched the money but he had the other guy and we'd all have to stand in line and... <laughs> He'd shell out a hundred bucks to everybody who would stand in line. It was uh, just another world. And the credit cards, which there wasn't like the automatic, had three lines, had server, captain, and maitre d'. They they actually tipped the captain and the maitre d'. Everything was a dynasty sort of a story thing. You'd come in and the furs and the cigarettes and the cocktails and the fancy jewelry and all that. Now, they come in dressed normal, you know, flip-flops, shorts, t-shirts, nobody smokes anymore. They bring their own bottles of wine. It's a different world. I'm not saying that one is better than the other because it's an evolution. That's what life is all about. Yes, we have a history, but just the way dad uh, broke grounds and rules in the 60s, uh, typically we were told that he was the first guy to ever serve linguine clams with the shells and they were like people like because back then they just opened jars and the clams and you use clam juice so that's like no 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 in Naples we don't do it like that and now today we're doing the same thing I grow my own stuff I have gardens everywhere behind the restaurant at uh, my house so anywhere we can grow things just to keep it real 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 Italian super seasonal just the way it always was in that sense we continue the tradition but our, our wine list is now different our cocktail program is not like what it used to be now we have a great new mixologist and so Marino's there but it evolves and then it keeps on growing and uh, it's it's cool. Sal and Mario Marino are the brothers behind Marino Ristorante on Melrose. The restaurant celebrated 40 years last month. I've cooked a lot of pasta in my life, literally tons of it. Always in abundant boiling salted water, as I was taught in Italy. But life in the internet continue to make the simple more complicated with multiple ways to do everything. I'm open. I've even cooked pasta directly in sauce with great success. Please don't cancel me. Here at Good Food, we like a rousing debate as much as anyone. And writer Ella Quitner made a bold claim in a story for Food 52 that she has discovered the absolute best way to cook pasta. So let's get into it. Hi, Ella. Hi, Evan. Tell me about your testing process. How did you go about it? 
Sure. When I do these head-to-head cooking tests, you know, for the column or otherwise to make them as um, comparable as possible, I try to select as many control factors as I can and I simplify as much as I can. So in this case, I use the same brand of boxed dried noodles across all tests. I salted with the same type of salt, which was diamond crystal kosher salt. Important to note, since obviously different salts have different levels of salinity and affect the water and noodles differently. Um, I added the salt always when the water was at a boil, not because I believe the, I think, debunked claims about lowering boiling point to a material degree if you salt first, but because I just didn't want to pit my pots. Um, And another control factor is that all of the noodles in the experiments were cooked exactly two minutes less than the boxes suggested for al dente. And then each was finished for two minutes in sauce with about a quarter cup of the cooking water um, after I tasted them sort of unsauced, which that step was intended to test each batch of noodles' ability to bind with the sauce. So interesting. So what was the pasta that you chose to test and why? I chose spaghetti for the salting and other factors rounds, which were phases one and three. And I used rigatoni for water quality. The um, kind of top-down answer is obviously the budget was not unlimited there. I would have loved to do 10 million tests with every shape of noodle, gluten-free noodle, fresh pasta, whole wheat, etc. Not possible in this case, maybe for a follow-up column or follow-up series. So I, I had to pick one or two shapes that were sort of representative of larger categories of noodle shapes. Spaghetti, I felt, was a good kind of stand-in for what I call kind of long boy noodles, like fettuccine, linguine, etc. And then rigatoni is a nice, short, extruded shape. Okay, so what are most people doing wrong? I strongly feel personally that no one is ever doing anything wrong if they're enjoying themselves in a kitchen or even near a kitchen, even if they're not cooking. One finding, though, that goes against conventional wisdom that I thought was super interesting and which I wanted to test based on results that were reported on by Harold McGee and Kenji Lopez-Alt had to do with the overall amount of water you use to boil pasta. So... As I'm sure you know, most conventional kind of old school advice suggests four or five quarts of well-salted water per pound of pasta. It's kind of the standard recommendation on a box of dried pasta as well. And, you know, Marcella has on cookbook, et cetera. If you Google it, that's what you'll find. Um, so that was phase two of my tests. And my findings were super interesting to me. They replicated those of McGee and Lopez-Alt. In that using less water, um, I think around the two-quart mark, was my sort of middle test, produced much starchier cooking water that helped the sauces stick to the noodles and didn't compromise texture. So that definitely went against kind of conventional advice. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the the technique of cooking pasta directly in sauce with maybe the addition of a little bit of water, one of the reasons it comes out so luscious is that you're not throwing away any of the starch, which... From a dietary standpoint, may be problematic for some people, but from a mouthfeel standpoint, is certainly pretty amazing. Absolutely. And I found it interesting because I'd written about that technique before, I think a year or two before I did this column, about kind of starting with cold water in a skillet, adding noodles that were dried, and just kind of covering them and cooking from there. 
And the comparison between what I'd written about in the past and when I replicated that for these trials, I've actually found in these trials that the mouthfeel of the noodles when they weren't sauced was gummier than I wanted it to be. And I didn't realize it when I kind of did it before because I think the sauce I was using was so thick and densely flavored that any sort of minor discrepancy in the pasta texture from starting from cold water and just covering it uh, was sort of disguised by, I don't want to say overbearing, but how how much personality the sauce had and how it clung to the noodles, and that was very exciting to me. But I did notice in these trials that a little more water, like around the two-quart mark, was more ideal than just enough water to cover, not only because the texture was a bit better and a bit closer to what you'd suggest you'd encounter with the conventional amount of water, but also because it left you more water to play with when you're getting ready to finish the pasta with the sauce. So interesting. So what did you find is the best way to cook the long, thin noodles? from both a salting and water quantity point of view? I found what worked well with the long thin noodles as well as with the shorter extruded noodles was aiming for about three quarts of water per pound of the dried noodles or closer to two quarts of water per pound if you can really commit to diligently stirring those noodles back below the water surface as the pasta absorbs the water because, and especially with the longer noodles, which will stick out of the pot, the as the water gets absorbed into the noodles, the water level in the pot goes down. So it's really a race between you and kind of how much you can stir so that you don't end up with noodles that have an uneven texture. And what about the shorter, thicker noodles, you know, like rigatoni or penne? Did they cook wildly differently than the long ones? No, only... So, no. Rigatoni basically had consistent results in that two to three quarts of water per pound produced ideally starchy water without compromising the texture on the surface or internally of the noodles with about heaping two teaspoons of diamond crystal kosher salt per quart of water being an ideal ratio. The only key difference was that they were easier to keep from kind of cooking unevenly because... They didn't stick out of the water like the longer shapes did. How does changing the amount of salt impact the way the pasta cooks? I did three different trials to assess that. I took one pound of dried spaghetti per each trial, and I used a control quantity of four quarts of water. And then the three tests were one tablespoon of diamond crystal kosher salt per pound of pasta. The second trial was three tablespoons of salt per one pound of pasta. And the third was a sort of salt like the sea kind of arch interpretation, which, you know, based on a calculation turned out to being seven plus tablespoons of salt for a pound of pasta. The result of those three trials were that one tablespoon of salt per one pound of dried pasta produced basically flavorless noodles in that I think salt, salting the water appropriately when you're cooking dried noodles really helps enhance that weedy flavor and gives a nice balance and complement to the saltiness of the sauce that you're finishing the noodles in. And that just didn't happen with the low salt amount. That child produced noodles that were kind of a bland canvas, like they just were not picking up what the sauce was putting down. And without sauce, they tasted completely unremarkable. 
And I was also surprised to find that that trial produced less clingy noodle surface for the sauce to stick to. And then the trial in which I used three tablespoons of salt for four quarts of water, that turned out to be the winning ratio. The sauce clung to the noodles beautifully. The noodles were delicious even on their own. You really got that salty flavor in each bite without the sauce. Um, And it complemented the saltiness of the sauce without kind of creating a jarring juxtaposition where either the sauce or the noodles were saltier than the other. Um, And then the final trial in which I did you know, seven plus tablespoons of salt or so based on my calculation for the four quarts of water produced basically inedibly salty noodles. And that's crazy for me to say because I'm a chronic oversalter. Um, and I guess I just never come up against this, but going into these trials, I didn't think it would be possible to oversalt the water and it really was. So the golden kind of number I found was a little under a tablespoon per quart or two heaping teaspoons of salt per quart of water. Yeah, I, um, you know, when I teach classes, people will often ask me, well, you know, I'm trying to cut back on salt or, um, you know, a member of the family has high blood pressure, really needs to watch their salt intake. And I always tell people it is better to keep a little salt in the pasta water and use a completely unsalted sauce Mm -hmm. than the opposite because no matter what you do, if you put no salt in the pasta water, you will never be able to make that dish of pasta sing. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think that it has to do also with giving time for that salt to sink into the noodles versus just sort of adding a finishing salt into the sauce. And and you have these noodles that have just absorbed flavorless water. Well, thank you so much, Ella. This has been great fun. Thank you for having me. I had a great time. And it's such an honor to discuss pasta with you specifically. That was writer Ella Quitner describing her method for making what she describes as the absolute best way to cook pasta. You'll find a link to her Food 52 story at our website, kcrw.com slash goodfood. Coming up, we've got the scoop on an exciting new Rajasthani restaurant with a tali you do not want to miss. I'm Evan Kleiman, and this is Good Food. Looking for good Indian food in Los Angeles? Head to Pioneer Boulevard in Artesia, where the offers are as resplendent as a holy festival. James Beard Award-winning LA Times restaurant critic Bill Addison has the details on a recently opened Rajasthani spot. Hi, Bill. Hi, Evan. How are you? I'm good. So Rajasthani food, I'm intrigued. Yes. We are going to a place called Buke, which is appropriate because it is the Hindi word that means hungry. I mean, from the pictures in the review, this is just so up my alley. Is this a a spot to think Tali, the trays of food served in Southeast Asia when considering the menu? Absolutely. The restaurant doesn't exclusively serve Tali's as some in the area do, but the menu is large and there is a platter called the Maharaja Tali that really drops you into the culinary action of the restaurant. So I definitely say that's, that's the place to start. And it's the thing that I see most on tables in the dining room. 
Where is Rajasthan in India and what is typical of the cuisine there? I I haven't heard of too many Rajasthani restaurants here. Oh no, I think it's the only one which makes it extra exciting. Um, Rajasthan is the largest state in India. The sweep of its land lays across the northwestern portion of the subcontinent, much of it in the Dar Desert. In the review that I wrote, I quote the late and very great chef Raghavan Iyer, who wrote this in his masterwork, 660 Curries, about Rajasthan's cuisine, if you don't mind me reading it. He says it better than I could. Reliance on dry legumes, flowers, milk, and dairy products is the norm, with vegetables being a scarcity confined to a short growing season. Rajasthan's cuisine, like its people's love for the arts, colorful jewelry, and clothing, reflects a culture that has triumphed over the challenges of a difficult topography. So that sets the scene a little bit, yeah. So I understand there's a couple behind the restaurant. Who are they and what are their roles? Pooja Devedi is the chef and her co-owner husband, Anshul, primarily oversees service. They both grew up near Jaipur, which is the capital of Rajasthan, known for its ornate architecture. So the menu has 80 items on it. Yes. Can you describe a few of the items one might decide to have on that Maharaja (laughs) Maharaja Tali? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Well, first of all, there are no no choices on the Tali. It's, It's definitely one of those you get what you get. Um, sort of situations, but that is not a bad thing because the the choices are amazing. First of all, you get all these small breads that are very typical of eating in Rajasthan, including some rotis that are made with cornmeal and others with pearl millet. There's one called bati that's almost like orb-shaped, and it's great for breaking in half and and dunking in warm ghee and then soupy dal, which is served on the side. And then you've got pickles, rice, different kinds of chutneys, dry style vegetables, kind of the more curry-like vegetables. So it's just this absolute feast on a platter. It, it actually doesn't fit on one platter. It's, it's two plates of food. So that is something to order when you go with somebody. I mean, that's what you order (laughs) by yourself and then you take home what you don't eat because it's such a great survey of of everything that the, the restaurant is doing. There are a few other things on the menu, though, that I'd encourage you to zoom in on. Like what? Mirchi vada, which are green chili fritters with spiced potatoes and fried in chickpea batter. Um, very typical of Rajasthani food. Another is a curry that centers around dried lotus seeds um, that are also known as fox nuts and have this kind of cashew-like quality to their texture. And that's in a silky milk and cream curry that's delicious. Since we're finding ourselves out there on Pioneer Boulevard, yes, where else should we go to just get a snack or something to eat while we're out there? 
I would recommend stopping by one of two snack shops, either Casey Pond and Shot House or Ross Raj in Artesia. Both of those you'll find the small kind of snacky, savory or sweet things that you can take home. And I would also shout out Rajani, which is a Gujarati all-tali restaurant. Excellent, a classic out there. And I'm also very into a place called Podi Dosa that specializes in dishes from the state of Andhra Pradesh. A lot of peanuts show up in that cuisine. It's a big agricultural crop in Andhra Pradesh. And I really like that place. It sounds wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you, Evan. That was LA Times restaurant critic Bill Addison discussing bouquet in Artesia. Tomorrow, Sunday, November 12th, bouquet is offering a special tali to celebrate Diwali. It's full of hyper-local Rajasthani specialties that I've never seen before in Los Angeles. It's available this Sunday only. The restaurant is open from 10.30 in the morning until 9 p.m. We've got a link to Bill's review and details on the special Diwali Tali at kcrw.com slash goodfood. If you missed any of today's show, listen at kcrw.com slash goodfood or on KCRW's mobile app. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. My thanks to the Good Food team, Jillian Ferguson, Laurel Garcia, and Elena Shatkin, and to our engineers, Justin Taylor, Nick Lamponi, and Hope Brush. And special thanks to Laura Kondarajan and Gary Masiha. I'm Evan Kleiman. This is the last time I'm going to remind you to send me your Thanksgiving questions. And to the person who asked if they have to invite their mother-in-law, the answer is yes. You'll thank me later. Have a great weekend. I'll be back next week with an all-new episode of Good Food.